Hello, Social Work 6370 students. So uh, this is the podcast lecture that I'm going to be releasing on the week that we are not meeting as a class. And the main point of this podcast lecture is to try to give you a deeper, somewhat richer description of some of the techniques that you might be able to use when you are directly engaging with different patients. Now, my goal here is to kind of take some of the information from your textbook and some of the terms that are used in that textbook and not necessarily, you know, summarize those for you, but re-describe them in the way that I think of them. Because, you know, the way that the textbook defines them and sort of like gives you examples of them, I think that that's okay. But I think that I can add to it and give you a little bit more that I think might be useful. And this will be particularly useful for all of you because at some point fairly soon, what we're going to be doing in class is having you demonstrate these techniques through role plays, right? So I think that if I were you, if I were a student in a class and I was going to need to demonstrate something, you know, show the professor and perhaps some of my peers how something is done, I would want to make sure that I had a pretty good understanding of it beforehand. And that's what I'm trying to do here today is give you a pretty good understanding so that when it comes time for you to demonstrate these techniques, you'll be able to do it. Uh, Last thing I'm going to say here in this intro is that these are techniques that I believe can be useful in not just like individual sessions. When I say individual sessions, that's, you know, where you have one therapist, one patient in a room together talking. Uh, Of course, they can be used in that situation, but I'm also going to suggest that these techniques can, can additionally be used when you are working with couples or perhaps even families or groups. And I'm hoping that all of you who are listening to this will be able to take these techniques and find something, you know, in them that that you will think to yourself, ah, I think I could try that. I, I think I could use that. Or perhaps even, ah, that I do that now. I've been doing it for a while. I just didn't know what it was called. And now I have some terms that I can use to sort of label these things that I've been doing. So uh, that is the introduction. Let's play a little bit of music. And when we come back, I am going to talk to you about some of the content in chapter number six. So another thing I want to say here, now that we're into the podcast lecture, is that it is really important that you keep up with the reading for this class. I know that I said this before in the very beginning podcast lecture, and maybe it seems like something that I shouldn't need to say. It should be an obvious thing, but it isn't always an obvious thing. I think sometimes students believe that they can, you know, because they're smart. You're, you're grad students, so you're smart people. So sometimes smart people believe that, you know, they can probably get by in a class without doing the reading. And sometimes that's even true. You know, I remember when I was in grad school, there were some classes that I could get through without doing the reading or with doing what I, not like really reading, kind of like that skimming thing that you can do sometime. And and I could get by. And I'm hoping that you don't do that in this class because I really want you to do the reading for this. I'm also going to use this opportunity to remind you that coming up, not this week, but next week, there is actually going to be a quiz in class. All right. Um, that quiz is going to be 40 multiple choice questions. And that's going to cover all of the chapters that we've read and the code of ethics. There's about four questions per chapter and four questions for the code of ethics. You add that all together, you have 40 questions. They're all, all worth 0.25 points, um, which comes to a total of 10 points for the class. It's 40 questions, all multiple choice. So it's going to take you a while to do it. Um, You're going to have about 45 minutes to complete the whole thing. So you're going to want to have done the reading and be up on these concepts when it comes time to take that quiz. All right. So now that I've done that, uh, 
Now what I'm going to do is actually start talking about the concepts. I just wanted to, I'm not trying to be like scary here. I, I really don't want to do that. I just want to make sure that you do understand you should not blow off the reading. That's, that's kind of what I'm going for here. Okay, really done with that tangent now. Let's get into some of these concepts in chapter number six. So early on in chapter number six, when I was reading this, I found myself thinking like, oh, okay, this chapter is one of the more useful chapters, I think, in this textbook. I think that there's a lot of stuff in this specific chapter that when I was reading it, I was going like, yeah, that's good. That's a, that's a solid description of a thing or that a person who's learning how to be a social worker, learning how to be a therapist could actually do. And so what we're going to do in this section is just kind of run through not every single one of the bold-faced kind of like terms and the different descriptions of techniques, but I'm going to focus in on a few of them that I think are really, really valuable and are not talked about enough, in my opinion, in other courses that people tend to take in social work, graduate school kinds of things, right? So let's do that. The first one that we have here is verbal following. I'm going to read from the textbook here. Verbal following involves the use and sometimes the blending of discrete skills that enable social workers to maintain psychological contact with clients on a moment-by-moment basis and to convey an accurate understanding of their messages. If you want to know where that's at, that's on page number 139 in the left-hand column. So what I want to do here is unpack this a little bit and talk to you about it because I think that this sentence is a really good sentence, but it doesn't give you all of the information that I wish that it would. So in this, I'm going to read the sentence one more time and then I'm going to zero in on, on one part of it. Verbal following involves the use and sometimes the blending of discrete skills that enable social workers to maintain psychological contact with clients on a moment-by-moment basis and to convey accurate understanding of their messages. What I want to focus on here is the moment-by-moment basis. I think that that might be the most important part of the sentence. And the reason I think that that's the most important part of the sentence is that I think that in my experience now of quite a large number of years, more than 15 years of doing some kind of social work stuff in a clinical setting, in a variety of clinical settings, I have learned that clinical work proceeds on a moment-by-moment basis. What I want to do now is give you a deeper, hopefully richer, understanding of what that means. Here's how I'm going to try to do it. Imagine the following thing. Imagine that you're working somewhere and you have to walk out to a waiting room and get a patient. So you walk out to the waiting room. That's a moment. Moments last anywhere from three to 10 seconds, by the way. I should have said that at the beginning. I forgot saying it now. Moments last three to 10 seconds. So you walk out to the waiting room. You see somebody, you're like, hey, come on back. You both walk back to an office of some sort. That's a moment. You walk into the office and you sit down. That's a moment. At some point, you might turn to the patient and say, how are you today? And the patient might take a couple of seconds to think about it and kind of look, look around the room before answering. That's a moment. Then eventually they'll speak and they might say something like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to be here today. That's a moment. These things happen really fast. And uh, we process a ton of information moment to moment to moment. There's so much going on in our brains and it's rather astounding just how much is going on. We're taking in information and based off of, you know, what a patient says, how the patient says it, how their body is uh, looking to us as they say, does it look tired? Does it look like it's high? Does it look like it is excited? Does it look like it's angry? We're picking up on all these sorts of things. And when we're hearing the verbal content that the patient produces and combining it with the nonverbal content that is also present as they produce their speech, we're making an enormous amount of decisions about what it is that we're going to do next. And this happens, like I said, every three to 10 seconds, we start another moment. If you go longer than 10 seconds, I guarantee you that a new moment has started. Every single moment, I'm going to tell you, this might sound weird, but every single moment has its own vibe. It has its own resonance. It has its own feel. And there are some times where the moments to moment to moment change very slightly in how they feel. And there's other times where the moments change dramatically, right? Give you an example of this. You know, the patient comes in, they say, how are you? You say, I'm fine. How are you? You know, they say they're fine too. They do that empty speech thing. Um, 
they say, so this is some, let me give you an update on some of the things we talked about last week. And they, they go through and they give you an update on a bunch of different things. And you say, uh-huh, that's great. You might ask a couple of follow-up questions. These are moments that are going to be stacking up and they're going to feel rather similar to each other. But there, there's going to be slight variations in each verbal exchange between you and the patient. There will be certain moments, though, where a patient says something or does something or says something in, in a way that is really surprising. It, it isn't, and it's usually not something that the patient planned to say. These are things that come up and they're not part of the patient's conscious plan when they walk into the session. They just kind of like happen. And I don't think there's any way to prepare for those. I don't think the patient can prepare for them. I don't think the clinician can prepare for them other than to know that they, they happen. There's a group out in Boston called the Boston Change Process Study Group. And they're a group of really interesting, very influential, very smart, very accomplished clinicians that got together and they wanted to, they started to study something. They wanted to figure out why it is that when some patients come into therapy, they change and other patients come into therapy and they don't change. Sometimes, you know, a therapist will have say a caseload of 10 people and on that caseload of 10 people, two of the 10 seem to make meaningful changes and you know the remaining eight people don't and so they're they were wondering why is that you know what is it that leads to the two people making changes where the eight people don't and they came up with this idea that one of the things that happens and when when people change in therapy is they enter these things that they call the now moments now moments are those moments where a person says something or does something or says something in a certain way that is unexpected and makes the patient feel a little vulnerable, right? That's what they were suggesting here. When patients go into therapy and they have these moments that lead to them feeling vulnerable, that's the first part of what needs to be there for people to change. The second part is the way that the clinician responds to that vulnerability. So if the clinician responds in a way that in a sense kind of like um, either, you know, discreetly or perhaps even very actively punishes the patient for being vulnerable, then what happens is change becomes less likely. If, however, the clinician responds in a way where they kind of like, they, they remain authentic and they meet the patient within that moment of vulnerability themselves, uh, if they share that moment of vulnerability, then that basically convinces the patient that being vulnerable is not a disaster that you can be vulnerable with somebody. And when you do that, that person will not weaponize your vulnerability and use it against you. And when that happens, it's called a moment of meeting. All right. So you have, let's do a quick review here. You have therapy proceeds on a moment by moment basis. Moments are three to 10 seconds. Ding, ding, ding. They're moving along at some point, And it might be several sessions before one of these happens. Uh, the patient will say something unexpected. Quick example. Uh, I remember once doing some clinical work with somebody and it was proceeding along and I, I mean, it, not a lot was really happening. Uh, I would even go so far as to say that it was a kind of like boring sort of clinical work. And then maybe sometime around like session seven, maybe eight, the person came in and they were doing their thing where they were saying stuff that I don't think was really that important. And then um, they said, I don't know what to talk about. And I said, well, have you had any dreams lately? I'm a psychoanalyst, so I like to talk to people about dreams. And they looked at me and they were very surprised, actually. And they said, actually, yeah, it's weird that you'd ask that question. And I said, weird, weird, why? And they said, I had a dream and you were in it. All right. And then they proceeded to tell me about this dream. So this was not something that the patient expected me to do. I don't think the patient expected me to ask them about their dreams. And when I did... I was kind of a, a bit of luck, I guess, on my part because they had recently had a dream that I was in. I don't think they planned to tell me about that dream, but then they started telling me about it. And by talking about that dream, we opened up a new kind of way of doing therapy, right? We, we started to really do therapy. We went from kind of like playing, I think, at doing therapy where they were coming in, they were saying stuff, I was listening and responding, but not a lot was happening. And after that, I think things started to happen. That is an example of a now moment leading to a moment of meeting. Now, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes now moments occur and the therapist blows it. They, they do something where they actually make it 
so that the patient feels like the vulnerability is being used against them. I'm going to give you a different technique, which is in a book that was written by the Boston Change Process Study Group here. Here's the setup. There was a young man, teenage boy, and when he was a little kid, there had been an accident in his kitchen. Um, something had spilled on him and burned him. And it left a really big kind of gnarly scar on his uh, upper shoulder and chest, you know, the way that burns do. And now he's a teenager and he goes to the beach or to the pool or something like that during the summers. And, you know, all of his male friends are taking off their shirts because that's what tends to happen at pools if you're a guy. And he's always really worried about doing that because whenever he takes off his shirts, or his shirt, he sees people see his scar and he sees their reactions to it. And it, it makes him feel as though there's something like really wrong with his body. And he spent a couple of sessions talking about this in therapy. He also has a bunch of other kinds of body issues, potentially some anorexia going on, things like that. And, you know, he's talked about this for a long, long time. And his therapist is a woman and she's like, I think in her thirties. And at a certain point, the teenage boy says to the therapist, maybe I should just show you my scars. And he goes to take off his shirt. So he was trying to be very vulnerable in that moment. The therapist got scared because here's this teenage boy taking off his shirt in her office. And she thinks, okay, this is a little bit too risque. And she says, that's okay. Uh, you know, you don't need to do that. And when she made that response, she kind of like backed away from the vulnerability and in doing so, I don't think she meant to do this. It happened, you know, really fast with, it was like an instinctual reaction on her part. But what happened in that moment is the kid had all of the negative things that he felt about his body confirmed by the therapist's reaction. You don't want to see this. If you, if I show you my scars, it's bad. Me showing you this is not a good thing. And this is a, obviously a very complicated situation, but I think it's a good one because it shows what can happen when a now moment is, doesn't turn into a moment of meeting, when it turns into what they call a missed moment, when things go badly, right? So this is the point here. I've talked about this for a pretty long time here. Therapy happens on a moment by moment basis. Moments move along, move along, move along, move along. Occasionally, there'll be a certain kind of moment, a now moment. In a now moment, something unexpected happens where the patient or the therapist is vulnerable. And if the other person in that moment responds to the vulnerability by being open to it and responding to it in a compassionate and authentic way, what that does is it convinces the person who was vulnerable that being vulnerable doesn't result in a disaster. If, however, the person responds, even with the best intentions, in a way that makes the vulnerability seem like a bad thing, then you have a missed moment. So when, when they meet in vulnerability, you have a moment of meeting, and when somebody tries to dodge the vulnerability, you have a missed moment. And that's a really important thing here. So what we're going to do now here is we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about some other really important content in this chapter. We are back. So as I look at your text here, there's a bunch of different kind of like bold-faced words, so stuff like stimulus response congruence and content relevance, you know, things like stimulus con response congruence is the extent to which social workers respond and provide feedback to clients that their, the client's message is accurately received. And content relevance is the extent to which the content of a social worker's response is perceived by the client to um, their substantive concerns. There's a bunch of other things in here too that were, what I think they're trying to talk about could be described in a different way. And this is how I would describe it. They're, they're using a lot of very technical terminology in the text, but I'm going to try to untechnicalize it here for you for a moment. When people come into therapy, one of the things that I'm going to say that many of them, perhaps not every single person, but many people are going to be looking for is for somebody to be genuine and authentically interested and curious about them. I think if you can get that, I think if you can nail being actually seriously interested in your patient and what it is that 
kind of troubles them, what it is that is problematic in their lives, why it is that they do some of the things that they do, why it is that they have turned into the person they have turned into. If you can be curious, then I believe you can nail a bunch of these things that they're talking about here. Now, here's the thing, and and this is one of the things that the text doesn't explicitly state, so I want to explicitly state it here. You cannot fake this kind of a thing, or at least if you can, I've never figured out how to do it. I don't think you can fake being interested in another person. You either are or you aren't. If you are interested in somebody, you genuinely want to know more about them. You genuinely want to understand them better. You genuinely desire to get a clearer picture in your mind of why they are the way that they are. Now, this is not, this is going to be a weird comparison, but bear with me. If you've ever, um, you know, gone on dates, which I'm assuming many of you have, uh, you know what I'm talking about here. There's sometimes where you go on like a first date with somebody and you're not interested. You, you know, maybe it's not that there's anything necessarily awful about the person. It's just that you're not interested. And other times you go on dates with people and you are interested and you act very differently depending on whether you are or are not interested in the person you're talking to. Now, obviously, when you're doing clinical work, it's not going to be anything like going on a date with people um, because it's not going to be anything like that kind of a relationship. And if it is like that kind of relationship, you got a problem. But anyways, um, that's a moot point. Let me move on from that. Uh, when you do meet with people, what I, I think you can do is you can either be curious like about why people are doing some of those things that they're doing. The normal things, the weird things, whatever. If somebody is a teacher, for instance, it's kind of not a weird thing. Somebody's a teacher. Why are they a teacher? If they're a kindergarten teacher, why a kindergarten teacher? What is it about that that made them think, that's what I want to do with my life? You can genuinely be interested in that. Let's use a bad example. If somebody is doing something like cutting themselves, they probably have a reason for it. And if you can really be interested in that, then you will actually end up producing these, you know, congruence and the, you'll, you'll vibe with the patients and they will vibe with you. You'll, you'll, you'll start to develop what this chapter might call rapport with one another. And I, I'm, I'm going to hammer this a lot, I guess, but the important and essential quality of doing good clinical work is absolutely curiosity. If you can be curious, you're good. Let's talk about curiosity is not for a second here. Curiosity is not, it has never been and never will be being judgmental, right? When you are judgmental, that kills curiosity. And judgmentalness sneaks into clinical work in all sorts of ways that we probably don't expect. You know, when I say to people who are social work students, don't be judgmental, they look at me and they're like, well, yeah, of course. But I don't think we realize how often we are judgmental without realizing it. Give you an example. If you diagnose somebody, right? A lot of times when you do that, you think, okay, I've diagnosed them. I know what's wrong with them. And I know how to create a treatment plan that addresses that specific issue. And all of that may be true. I mean, you're, you're going to diagnose people. That's going to be part of what you do. But I don't think diagnosing a person really tells you why they do what they do. That's not going to be contained in the DSM. The DSM is not going to give you the why. It's going to tell you what the symptom might look like. It's going to give you some criteria to help you rule it in and rule it out, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to tell you why this person does whatever it is they're doing. If they have OCD, it's not going to tell you why they have OCD. If they have an eating disorder, it's not going to tell you why they developed an eating disorder. You're going to need to figure that out. And I think sometimes when we have the diagnosis, what happens is we tend to like zero in on what we think is the problem and, and possibly zeroing in on what we think is the answer to the problem, as opposed to before we have it, when we actually are like, oh, what's wrong here? What's going on in this person's life? When, when we do that, then we are able to maintain our interest level. There's another therapist who, he died many years ago, uh, another psychoanalyst named Wilford Rutherford Beyond. Really, really interesting dude. He had something that he talked about in his writing. And I, I think it's an interesting idea. Now, you might not think it's interesting, but I think it's fascinating. And I, I actually would tell you that I tend to do this. And it's uh, really effective most of the time. Not 100% of the time, but most of the time. So here's the first technique I'm going to talk about. Approach every single session that you have with whatever patient you're working with, whether it's an individual, a couple, a family, a group, whatever. Approach every single session as if it were the very first and the very last session you will ever have with that person because it is. 
I want to say a little bit more about that. Um, even if you've had like 50 sessions with somebody, by the time you have session number 51, they've changed between session number 50 and 51. And guess what? You have too. You've changed between session number num- session number 50 and session number 51. The, the person that was there in session 50 is not the exact same person that's there in session number 51 for either the patient or the therapist. It's always good to remember this. Another thing that's important is that a lot of times when people start therapy, they'll come in with a description of some kind of issue, some kind of problem, some kind of situation in their lives, and they'll focus on that for a while. And this happens so, so very often. People eventually kind of move away from that. They move past that and they start talking about something else, which is which they didn't plan to talk about, but it's, it's actually more important than the thing that they started talking about. So if you stay fixated on what you were, you know, working on or whatever, in the beginning of therapy, you'll miss some of these new things that will come up uh, later on. So you got to, again, <laughs> this might seem like a really simple thing. Stay open, stay curious, stay interested. One of the best ways to do that is by approaching the session as if you've never met this person before and as if you're never going to meet them again. Uh, Beyond also described this as approaching a session without memory or desire. Now, he said that in in his writing, he said, of course, you can't actually do that. You will remember things from previous sessions and you will want things to happen. But you do your best to kind of like turn down your memory and turn down your desire to the lowest possible setting so that you can continue to be interested in the person. Uh, Beyond had a really cool phrase for this. He called it illuminating things with darkness, which I think is really poetic and kind of beautiful. But it's not a cool idea, right? If we focus more on what it is that we don't understand, what is mysterious, about a person, what we don't know, as opposed to focusing on what we do know, what we do understand, what we believe is the answer, it changes the way that we work. So that's one of the other techniques that I want to talk about, which is really important. Approaching each session without memory, without desire, treat it like it's the very first and the very last session you'll ever have with this person, because it is. Be interested, be curious about what's going on with them. Find a way to do that. Even if the person is kind of a hard person to like, that's okay. You can still be interested in people who are difficult to like. If they are easy to like, that's wonderful. Maybe it's a little bit easier, but find something to be interested in about them. All right, so we've talked about moments. We've talked about being interested. We're going to take one more quick break. When we come back, what we're going to do is get into some more kind of fine details of different techniques that you can use. So what I'm going to be zeroing in on here are some of the things that come from the verbal following skills section of the text. I'm not going to talk about every single thing in this section, but again, I'm going to kind of zero in on a couple of different things and find ways to, in a sense, re-describe and add to what I think is there in the text. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about this text, that some of the things that got really right, is that you can do a lot with a little. What I mean by that is that I think sometimes therapists or or people who want to be therapists think that they need to show up to sessions and that they need to kind of like razzle dazzle people with being like ultra wise, ultra informed, uh, people who can do things like educate whoever comes to see them on all sorts of things. And when people approach sessions with that mindset, I think they talk more than they listen. And I think that's problematic. And if you approach the session, you know, with the idea that what you need to do is listen more and talk less some of the, the these nonverbal following techniques and that they, they go get into in this chapter can be really, really useful. So let's start off with accent responses. These were interesting things. These start on page number 140, by the way. Uh, the text says that these involve repeating in a questioning tone of voice or with emphasis a word or a short phrase. Suppose a client says, I've really had it with the way my supervisor at work is treating me. The social worker might reply with, had it? This sort of response is intended to prompt further elaboration by the client. This is, I have a different way of referring to this. I've never referred to these as accent responses. And honestly, before I read this book, I'd never even heard that term. What I tend to think of that as is highlighting. 
then uh, and I guess the reason I think of it that way is because that's what it was taught to me as when I was going through my training and formation as a therapist. Somebody told me that it would be a good idea to highlight different parts of my patient's speech, and I was like, "Highlight? What do you mean?" And they said, "Well, you know, it's like when you read a textbook for class. You do you ever highlight things?" And I said, "Yeah, of course I do." And they said, "Okay, do you highlight every single word in the text?" And I said, "No." And they said, "What do you highlight?" And they, I said, "The important stuff." They said, "There you go. That's it." So when a patient is talking, they're going to say certain things and you're going to kind of want to highlight those words. Another way that you could um, think of this is sort of calling the patient's attention back to a specific thing that they actually said. It's not something that you think. It's not something that they didn't say. It's got to be something that they actually said. So in this example, I've really had it with the way my supervisor at work is treating me. The clinician went with had it. And then all they did is they just report, repeated two words that came out of the patient's mouth and they kind of put that question mark at the end by saying it a certain way. Had it, right? You can raise your voice a little bit and that makes it clear that you're asking a question. You can also make your quizzical face when you do that. Had it. Um, that is something you do. Another way that you can think of this is a, it's sometimes been called a one word question. I don't usually refer to it that way because sometimes, like in this example, there's two words, but um, it, it kind of helps for the point. So I'll get into it here. I'll give you a different example. Um, I was working with an adolescent patient at one point, and the adolescent patient was describing a decision that their parent had made, and they said, it's, it's not fair. And I just went, fair, right? It, and I wanted them to say more about that, and so that was just like a one-word question. I just took one word that the patient had actually said, can't emphasize that enough. The words have to be words that the patient actually said, and then put a question mark at the end of it, uh, highlighted it. That's something that's that's really, really interesting. It's a This is a super powerful technique. It's an undersold technique and it's an undertaught technique in my opinion. And I think it's actually one of the best things that you can do in the beginning of treatment. Now, one of the other things about these that are really interesting, I think is that this chapter talked about the difference between open-ended questions and closed-ended questions. Um, these are wonderful examples of what are really simple open-ended questions. When you just kind of say these words back to the patient with a question mark at the end, you've produced an open-ended question. You've asked them to say more about something, but you haven't given them really explicit directions on how to respond, which means that they have to figure that out. It's really interesting. If you give really explicit sorts of uh, responses, it's not usually as good. So here's a slightly more explicit example with the from the text here. I've really had it with the way that my supervisor at work is treating me. You could give them a less open question and say, could you give me some examples? Now it's still open-ended, but it's less open-ended than had it question mark. Um, right. Uh, or you could ask a really very close ended question. You know, how often does this happen? You know, that, that, that now we're getting more closed. Are you sure that your supervisor is treating you badly? They could say yes or no to that, right? That's a super close ended question. Close ended questions have their time. They have their place. I ask them. I think every clinician asks them, um, you need to at different points. They're just going to be things that you're going to ask. And so I don't want you to think that they're evil or that they're you know radioactive and bad. What I want you to do is think that you can become overly reliant on closed-ended questions. And I also want you to realize that it isn't just a matter of open or closed, that this occurs on a continuum of very closed questions that can be answered with a simple yes, no, to slightly less closed, which could be answered with yes, no, maybe, to kind of between open and closed, can you give me an example of that, uh, to very, very, very open, had it. You know, those are certain things. Another thing that you can do sometimes, uh, and this is talked about in the chapter two, is kind of ask a question, not by using words, but just kind of by making a noise. You know, so uh, say a patient says something that you think maybe contradicts something they said earlier. You could say that contradicts something that you said earlier. That's something you could do. Or you could just kind of go, huh, and that's it. Just make a noise. Hmm. Ah, right. Little things like that are really, really useful ways to, if you're not used to being, to sitting in silence with somebody, if you need to, in a sense, kind of like release some of the tension that gets built up in silence, one of the ways that you can do that is by making a simple noise with your mouth and then you know also kind of matching it up with like a shrug of your shoulders or a raise of your eyebrows or something else that you do with your body 
Those sorts of responses are really, really effective. Now you got to find your way of doing it. it you, I mean, everybody kind of has their own way of, of asking these one word questions or making these, these noises that are actually questions as well. And you got to find your way of doing it. And, and I would encourage you all to do that. And again, these techniques are really, really great. Undersold, undertaught. Another technique that they talk about are reflections. And these things have such a bad rep. And I think they have such a bad rep because they've been taught so badly for so long. So here's what I think people tend to think that reflections are. They think a reflection is a person, let's use the same example from the text here. I really had it with the way that my supervisor at work is treating me. A lot of times when I've asked students to tell me, how would you re, like respond to that with reflection? They say something like, uh, I would say to the patient, you're feeling really, really upset because your supervisor is acting in ways that you think are unfair. Um, they follow this very formulaic, you feel X because Y. Those are really terrible reflections. The text gives you a better way, I think, of thinking about reflections. They say here, reflections are used to respond to both content messages and affect. There are several forms of reflection, and then they kind of get into different examples of it. Uh, what I'm going to suggest is that a reflection can take kind of two different forms. The first form is the more basic and the second form is the more uh, advanced one. It's kind of an advanced player move. Let's start with the simple one. The first form of reflection that I tend to use a lot in my own work, uh, and it, again, I think this is a very undersold and undersought technique, is, and I don't call it a reflection, I call it noticing things out loud. So sometimes patients will say things and I will just, uh, and I'm reflecting back to them what they've said. I said this you know, earlier that it's really important to use the words that a patient actually said. And I think that's really important, but uh, that comes into play with reflections as well. So let's say, for example, you're working with a patient and they say something like, yeah, they come in and they tell you that their significant other believes that they're having an affair, but they're not, right? That's their, their thing. And they tell you like why that they would never have an affair, that there's, there's, they just don't even think that that would be a possibility, that there's no way they could ever have an affair because of their, you know, various ethical beliefs, perhaps they're very religious. Perhaps they tell you about this other thing, how they never even think about having an affair. And they, they even find it insulting that their partner would suggest that they're having an affair, right? And they go on and on and on. So they go on for like 10 minutes talking about all the reasons why it's so ridiculous and so absurd and absolutely wrong for their spouse or partner to believe that they're having an affair. What I would do in that situation, what I would be thinking in that situation is that this person is working way too hard to convince me that they're not having an affair. And honestly, I would probably start to suspect that they probably were, they might not be actually having sex with another person, but they're probably interested in somebody else, right? Maybe they actually are having an affair. But um, when people take that level of defensiveness, it makes me think there's something going on. Now, I'm not going to say that out loud to the person. I'm not going to say like, you know what? I don't buy what you're saying. I think that you're interested in somebody else. I'm not, that would be, I think a really bad move. What I will do is notice something out loud and kind of like reflect something that the patient has said back to him or her. Uh, in this instance, I would say, huh, this is really interesting to me. You've spent the last 10 minutes telling me that you're not having an affair. And that would be all I would say. I would see where that leads. I don't know where that would lead, right? But it's just a reflection of something that happened in front of me. Another way that you could think of this is witnessing something and then re-describing the thing that you have just witnessed. This is something which is, again, very, very powerful. It is not complicated. It's just describing what you saw. Now, when you do these things, I think it's very important that you keep yourself limited to what you did see right? You don't comment on things that you didn't witness. So if a person, say you're working with couples and couples come in and they tell you about an argument they had the last night um, when they were driving home from somewhere and they tell you all about the argument. And at one point, like one person is telling their version of events and the other half of the couple like interrupts six times. Uh, you know, in, in a situation like that, I might notice out loud, I might reflect what I'm seeing by saying, 
you know, I, I would like to, do I have your permission to point something out? And when I ever ask that question, people always say yes. I'd be like, you know, when so-and-so was talking, you interrupted them by my count at least six times, period. That's it. That's all I'm doing. I'm pointing something out and seeing where that leads. I don't know where it's going to go, right? And maybe for people who want to know where things are going to lead, this might seem a little bit weird, but it's, in, it's more interesting, I think, to do things this way. I witness, I'm not talking about the content of their argument. I'm talking about what I saw happen. So do you see the difference there? So that's another thing you can do. And if people want more examples of this, when we actually meet as a class again, please let me know and I can give you more examples. Uh, so let's move to the, from witnessing things and then redescribing them, noticing things out loud, kind of as forms of reflection to talk about the second kind of a reflection, which is a reflection that I think of as more of an interpretation uh, this is, again, this is semantics. The, I have a different set of vocabulary that comes from my own particular formation and training than is in the text, but I think they kind of point in the same direction. So when I was getting trained as an analyst, one of the things that I learned about was this technique called interpreting. When you interpret, what you do is you take something that the patient has said, or maybe they've insinuated something like that, uh, something that you've witnessed, something that you've seen in session, and what you do is you interpret it. And when you interpret what you're doing is you're not just witnessing exactly, but you're kind of trying to reveal something. You're trying to cut in to their defenses. And, you know, when you cut into a defense, you peel it back and you reveal what's underneath it. You reveal what they're defending themselves from, at least in theory. So let me give you some examples of this. Um, I was working with a teenage patient a number of years ago. And this teenage patient uh, did a lot of very outrageous things that were very, 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 very likely to attract the attention of other people. They loved doing outrageous things. They had outrageous hair. Um, they would uh, wear outrageous clothing that would get that they basically, if somebody at their school saw this clothing, they would take issue with it and they'd say like, you can't be wearing that. And they would be like, why can't I wear this? You know, what is this, some kind of fascist dictatorship that you're, you know, they, that was the kind of kid that I was dealing with here. And this kid uh, would use the term attention whore rather regularly. They'd say, I don't, I'm not an attention whore or I hate attention whores. They'd describe other people trying to get attention and be really irritated by it. And, you know, after working with this kid for a pretty significant amount of time, they did that one day. And I interpreted it. I said, I, do you mind if I ask you a question? Again, I'm asking permission and people always say, sure. I've never had anybody say no to that. And the teenage kid said, yeah, go ahead. I'm like, I'm really curious here. Why is it that when somebody else does this thing that you just described, you call that being an attention whore and you think that it's really kind of gross and nasty and so on and so forth. But when you do your version of that thing, it's not that. Like, what's the difference exactly? So what I'm doing here, I'm actually being curious. I, want, I was really interested in what the patient was going to say to that. So referring back to an earlier technique, I wasn't making this up. I wasn't faking like I didn't care what they said. I wanted to see what the patient would say. I really wanted to know. Um, but at the same time, I was trying to cut into something. Now, interpretations are harder because when you make them, they don't usually make the patient like you very much. A good interpretation does not mean that the patient responds to you positively. A good interpretation, you know it's good because it has an effect. Uh, what do I mean by that? When, some, when an interpretation lands and it has an effect, something changes in the patient. And this kid, for example, was like, you are you know, a fool, you don't understand, and da-da-da-da-da. So they, they got really irritated with me. I think they even canceled like the next session, perhaps even the next two. I'm not quite sure. This was a while back. But um, they were really mad that I made this comparison. But they did come back. And when they came back, you know what they told me? You know what? Ever since you said that thing about like how I might, I'm actually being an attention whore, I've started to notice <laughs> that, that like, you know, when I see other people doing things that, yeah, I, I do do those things. I, I mean, it's not exactly the same. I have my way of doing it. It's kind of different, but it's kind of the same. Like, it, so there was an effect, right? Actually, multiple effects. One, the kid got mad. Two, the kid canceled sessions. Three, the kid came back and actually said that even though they didn't like what I said, it got into their head. It was a bell that you can't unring after it's been rung, and it was kind of haunting them and messing with them. That's a good interpretation, in my opinion, right? 
So those are different ways that you can do it. Go back to one of my other examples here. Um, uh, the person who said that they would, you know, it's ridiculous that they would ever be having an affair. Uh, I might say to somebody if I knew them well enough, I, you, I don't go to, ref, to interpretations until I feel like I really have a good um, rapport, a good vibe. I, like I, I, you can't start there, I don't think, right? You got you to gotta work your way up to it. And when you do that, you, it, so I'm hedging here. Let me stop. Once you know the person, you can make an interpretation. So if I was working with somebody and they're doing the I'm not having an affair thing, and I knew them well, I had a good report. What I might respond to them with is something like, you know, um, this is really interesting to me. At no point have I ever suggested that you are or that you're not having an affair. And yet you're working so hard to convince me that you're not. That makes me wonder why it is that you're working so hard. Maybe you haven't slept with somebody yet. Maybe, you know what I mean? That, that has not occurred. But I'm wondering if there's something happening with you that you're worried about you know that's uh, again it's a more of an advanced player move you 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 work your way up to that kind of a thing and uh, the text even says this at one point this is on page number uh, 142 reflections with a twist are reflections in which the social worker uh, agrees in essence with the dilemma expressed by the client but changes the emphasis perhaps to indicate that the dilemma is not unsolvable but rather that the client has not had the time to solve it. Uh, yeah, that's a, one way you could think about these things, right? A, a good reflection with a twist is an interpretation. After that, it talks about things like motivational interviewing and gets into the stages of change. Ooh, I want to say a couple things about that. So like the motivational interviewing approach, uh, this has also been called uh, playing Columbo. Now, Columbo is something that some of you might know who that was. It was a fictional television character played by Peter Falk. He was this kind of like bumbling detective who would solve cases. And it was weird because what he would do is he just like would go someplace and he'd like trick people into saying things, uh, like confessing to murder and stuff. I mean, like, I don't, hold on a second here. I, I don't understand what happened. Let, okay, so you were here and you were doing this. And then there was this, how, how could you be here? And how, he, would, he would do this kind of like, I don't get it. Help me get it. I don't understand your story. I'm, I'm so confused. That was like his, his shtick. And uh, when he would do that, people would think, they would let their guard down and then they would eventually like say something they didn't think they were they were planning to not say and he'd catch them in the act motivational interviewing is kind of a version of that i don't really like that technique myself but uh, i do think that there's some value to it thing that happens in this chapter. Ooh, the stages of change. So earlier I talked to you about the Boston Change Process Study Group, and I gave you their version of change, right? They think that change happens when people are vulnerable. Uh, and if you don't have vulnerability, there will be no change. And now there's a different uh, kind of style of change, which gets talked about in this chapter, which is very common in the substance abuse world. And it goes like this. You have pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, relapse. And then you go back to the to stage number one. And I kind of want to give you a quick description of what each of these stages are because I think that this is important stuff. So pre-contemplation is when the person comes in and they're like, I don't actually have a problem. The only reason I'm here is to make people chill out. So like my probation officer said I had to come. My parents said I had to come. My work said I had to come. But I don't have a problem. That's pre-contemplation. Contemplation is where the person starts going like, okay, maybe I have a problem. Not that they have it, but maybe I have a problem. They're open to that. After that, they, there's this idea that they do have a problem. They start to prepare to do something about it. Action is where they attempt to take actions that will address their problem. Uh, maintenance is where they continue to take those actions for a period of time. And then relapse is where they stop taking those actions and the problem reasserts itself. And we go back to uh, probably preparation at that point. So let me give you an example. Uh, this obviously works with drug use. You could use it that way. But you could also use it with something like, I have this happen in my own life, uh, <laughs> kind of regularly, embarrassingly so. Uh, one of the things that I'll try to do on a regular basis is stop eating junk food. I really like eating junk food. I, I dig it so much, uh, way more than I should. 
and I justify it to myself. Like I'm, I, I have a resting heart rate of like 47 cause I run all the time. Right. And I try to do different things to keep myself healthy. So I've, I've earned it, you know, and then I'll go and I'll eat too many donuts or something or a Domino's pizza or some other form of junk food, Oreo cookies. That's my thing. You know, there was a time when I was younger where I was in pre-contemplation where I was like, I don't need to worry about this because I'm physically fit. This does the like nutritional rules don't apply to me. Then eventually, you know, I got older and, uh, you know, I couldn't eat like a person who was in their early twenties and not suffer the consequences. So I entered into contemplation. Eventually I got to the point where I started to prepare to do something about it. I started to, you know, research different dietary nutritional things you can do. Then I started to implement them. And then I maintained, you know, my diet for a period of time. And then something would happen. Like I'd go to a holiday party and there'd be really delicious looking cookies. And I'd, you know, say, I'll, I'll have one. I didn't have one. I had like way more than one. And so then I relapsed and then I had to go back to preparation again. Right. So that's kind of how that kind of those stages of change work. And, uh, that, where, where is that in this chapter? Well, one of the things you can use those for the stages of change is it's a technique in thinking and not every technique that you learn in this class is going to be a technique where you actually end up taking an action, saying a thing, doing something. Sometimes the technique is a way of thinking about stuff. So these stages of change is a way to think the Boston change process study groups version of change is a different way to think. They're both techniques in thinking that you can use. Being curious is a technique. It's more of a cat technique that involves your, your thought, I think, than anything else. But it's still a technique. Um, and that is that. So, okay, how long have I talked here? I've talked for a while. We're getting close to an hour. But uh, that's okay because we're not meeting as a class this week. So you're having a kind of long podcast lecture. Uh, but I'm going to stop talking now because I feel like I've hit on a lot of the stuff that I wanted to hit on here in Chapter 6. There's a bunch of really interesting kind of like cool examples. There's some cool lists. Again, you're going to be having a quiz. I want to encourage you all to go through... And even if you don't read the chapters, at the very least, please, please, please go through and find all those bold-faced words and just take some notes, all right? That'll be an important thing. Why is it an important thing? If you've listened this far, you're going to get to the really cool nugget of information that you're, you're going to be able to use. When you take your quiz, your 40-question quiz, you're going to be allowed to use notes. If you have notes... That's going to be a lot faster for you to get the information you need than if you're trying to find things in the textbook. So take notes because you can use notes when you're taking your test. I'm not going to stop anybody from using notes. If you've taken notes, that means you've at the very least skimmed the reading or done the reading. The things you should take notes on, bold-faced words. Know those things, please, and thank you. And uh, that will conclude this podcast lecture. Thank you for taking the time to listen to it. I will see you in class next week.